New, new, new black, new, new black Wall Street book club. Evan Jefferson, brother, much love. Educating, elevating, because in knowledge is the power and we'll never give it up. <laughs> Literature is for the masses. Where to put your money down the how to watch your assets. Yeah, uplifting others is a passion. My brother Evan, he will turn it into action. New Black Wall Street Book Club. You should come read with come us. Read with us. Yeah, we comprehend and discuss. Yeah. If we all just come together, there's no limit for there's us. No limit for us. <laughs> Here comes your host, New Black Wall Street. Evan, take it away. New Black Wall Street Book Club. Welcome to the New Black Wall Street Book Club, where black folk do read. If you put it in a book, we absolutely will find it. I'm your host, ERGJ, your certified financial educator, CEO of ERGJ Enterprises, ERGJ Black Bazaar, and international best selling author of the book. The Black Billionaires Club. It's a study of black wealth. It's a study of the 12 richest black people in the world today and how they built their wealth. And I just believe that if you want to be wealthy, you should study wealthy people. We can find that book by going to the website www.theblackbillionairesclub.com www.theblackbillionairesclub.com You'll find that link in the description above or below. With Daily Motivations for African-American Success, this is a book written by Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough, Daily Motivations for African-American Success, and it's 1231, so we're into the last day of this book, and we'll just start it back over until I find another book that I might want to go through, uh, but today's title is I Dare You. Today's title is I Dare You. So let's find out what Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough has to say to us today, this morning, uh, as he gives us our motivation. It starts with a quote which comes from uh, Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist, who says this, and I quote, the collapse of character begins with compromise. The collapse of character begins with compromise. The collapse of character begins with compromise. That's a quote from Mr. Uh, from Mr. Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist. Uh, the collapse of character begins with compromise. Let's find out how he's going to motivate us here this morning as we're talking about I Dare You. Uh, Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough, one of the greatest authors of our time. Anytime you see that, but his name, his book, or something like that, pick that thing up. I tell you, it will change your life. Uh, let's read. It has been one year, 364 days of inspiration, motivation, empowerment, wisdom for some from some of your best and brightest. Now it's time to place all that you have read into action. This is my challenge. It is difficult to put a challenge on paper. I'd rather look you straight in the eye and say, I dare you. But in my mind, I've imagined that I'm on one side of the table and you are on the other. I'm looking across and saying, I dare you. I dare you to develop the enduring qualities of Booker T. Washington and Madam C.J. Walker. I dare you to see the bigger picture as did Benjamin Mays, to study and read and to pay the price to secure an education. I dare you to make your home a centerpiece for love and spiritual values as did Claire Mother Hale or Fannie Lou Hamer. I dare you to step out boldly in spite of the odds to build a profitable enterprise, one that your race can be proud of as did John Johnson and Earl Grey. I dare you to light the fire of young imaginative minds as did Matt Mary McLeod Bethune and Nyera Suter Casa. 
I dare you to turn a deaf ear to any possible excuses and make a name for yourself as did Bonnie St. John. I dare you to write from a heart and stir the consciousness of people as did Alice Walker and Toni Morrison. I dare you to return to your roots and share with others the fruits of your daring as did Alex Haley. I dare you to become involved. I dare you to become strong. I dare you to become rejuvenated. I dare you to become alive with possibilities. I dare you. Our affirmation of the day from the author himself, Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough, goes like this. Repeat after me. Today, I accept the dare. Today, I accept the dare. Affirmation of the day, again, from Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough. We use affirmations to speak life into our life. We use the power of the tongue to speak life into our life, and that's exactly what we do. Uh, we repeat these things over and over and over again until they bring forth a harvest into our life. Real short affirmation as he is challenging us. Repeat after me, and this time say it with some conviction. If you are accepting the dare from our author, today I accept the dare. Man, man, man. So we've gone through the book, Daily Motivation for African-American Success, and I'll probably just restart this thing until I find something else that I want to go through because it's 365 days of motivation. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, this small little book, uh, Daily Reading, five, 10 minutes a day, it's helped to reshape, rethink, and re reshape the way that I think. And hopefully it's had an impact on you as well. I dare you daily motivations for african-american success by mr dennis p kimbrough daily motivations for african-american success by mr dennis p kimbrough a quick word from our sponsor The New Black Wall Street Book Club presents Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African-Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires by Shamari Wills. Let's read. Uh, Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African-Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Chapter 19, End of the Promise. Let's get it. Gurley's reputation, so this is O.W. Gurley in Greenwood. If you guys know Greenwood, that's going to be the street uh, for in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where you had Greenwood, Archer, Pine, or Gap, uh, where the, uh, new, uh, the Black Wall Street at Tulsa was, was located. So Greenwood was boosted by his beating of the three white women who harassed his wife. For a moment, it seemed that the richest black man in Greenwood was putting aside his ambition and pragma pragmatism and becoming a man of the people. It didn't last. In 1918, everybody put it on so 1918. In 1918, I was like, no, about the time frame that we're talking about, because now we understand it's 100 years ago. We're in 2019. This was in 1918. So over a century, we're closing out a decade. Now we're looking back over a century of some things that happened back then. 
1918, O.W. Gurley was charged with bribery by two women in Greenwood. According to the complaint, Gurley had two rings from the two black women to keep them out of jail. Gurley, who was a Tulsa Sheriff's deputy and charged with policing Greenwood, was rumored to have regularly demanded bribes from people accused of crimes in Greenwood in exchange for not arresting them. Gurley escaped jail and kept his sheriff's deputy badge, but rumors of corruption dented his reputation. In 1919, as the black newspapers carried news of Madam C.J. Walker's death, three black men were arrested in Tulsa on the suspicion of shooting a white iron worker. The men were transported to the Tulsa County Jail, just across the train tracks from Greenwood in the white section of Tulsa, and put into a cell together. Word traveled through the grapevine back to Tulsa that a white mob had plans to take the men from the cell that night and lynch them. Within hours, a posse of black men were organized. More than two dozen black men carrying revolvers and rifles marched across the train tracks to the jail and barged in. They demanded to see the prisoners and got into a shooting match with the police. As the confrontation escalated, men on both sides began to move their fingers toward the triggers of their guns. As the tension reached a breaking point, Gurley sauntered through the door. His hair was now gray and he wore glasses with thick circular lenses. He was a rich man and wore an expensive suit on his broad frame with a sheriff's star pinned on his breast and a pistol at his side. He walked up to the police chief and the two walked away conversing in whispers. A few minutes later, a deal had been brokered. Gurley was given assurances that the men wouldn't be harmed and the police would allow the group from Greenwood to check on the prisoners if they left immediately thereafter. The delegation of the men from the group escorted by an officer went back to check on the men in the cell. A few minutes later, they came back reporting that the prisoners were being treated well and the men went back to Greenwood. The aftermath would send chills through White Tulsa. The independence and strength of Greenwood had been reluctantly tolerated as long as Gurley could keep the blacks under control. But this armed invasion as it was later called, set off alarms. The Negroes were getting out of their place. A few months later, a white man was accused of assaulting a black woman on a trolley in downtown Tulsa. Gurley obtained a warrant for the man, but was forbidden from arresting him. Tulsa Sheriff Willard McCullough reportedly ripped the warrant from Gurley's hands, stating he would never allow a black man to serve a warrant on a white man in Tulsa. In response, Gurley resigned as sheriff's deputy and handed McCullough his badge. All right, so things, man, here in Tulsa, man, we see that uh, that there was a little bit of power that was taking place with black folk uh, that they had. Uh, they used uh, the, 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 their right to bear arms. Uh, they took care of their own kind of half of the city or part of the city that they lived in that they had built. And now we're starting to have this, um, uh, this dividing line. You know, you had a, a black man that were arrested by whites over on the white side of Tulsa. But then when it was time to have do the same ordeal to a white man on the black side of Tulsa, they wasn't having that. So, of course, we know 100 years ago and still today, there ain't no such thing as fair, by the way. But that was part one of chapter 19. into Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African-Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires, End of a Promise, Part 2. 
1921, Gurley was the richest and most powerful man in Greenwood. He was a landlord to almost half of the town's residents and shopkeepers, collecting $5,000 or about $68,000 in today's terms a month in rent. With more than 100 properties in Greenwood, he was worth between $500,000 and $1 million, which is about $6.8 million to $13.6 million in today's terms. His net worth could only be guessed at in Greenwood as Gurley kept his own money across the tracks in the White Banks in downtown Tulsa. His hotel, valued at at least $99,000, was one of the busiest in the district. J.B. Stratford, Greenwood's other founding father, was growing more popular. In 1918, he helped organize an armed group to turn back a lynch mob in nearby Bristol, Oklahoma. In Greenwood, Stratford's more militant approach to civil rights became increasingly popular. In 1920, with the help of A.J. Smitherman, he, bought, he brought W.E.B. Du Bois to Greenwood. Gurley didn't protest. In fact, he put him up in his hotel. Du Bois gave several lectures to the residents, focusing on the need for blacks to become economically self-reliant and push back against lynching. In a fiery speech in the theater, he looked, on to, looked out onto the faces of hundreds of Tulsa blacks and spoke romantically by the burgeoning artistic renaissance in Harlem, New York, advocated for African-Americans to organize for their rights and urged the people of Greenwood to protect their own people from lynching. Everybody put in the comments, so protect. To protect their own people from lynching. So you had O.W. Girl and J.B. Stratford who actually partnered to actually create or start or begin this place called Greenwood, which was a black city or town, I guess you can call it, uh, in Oklahoma back in 1918. And uh, and uh, O.W. Gurley was kind of like, he, he owned a lot of properties, but he was, I guess you could say, I mean, I won't call him Uncle Tom, but he definitely had an affinity for white people. Uh, you know, he, he was... They, he was he was he was he was looked upon well in the eyes of white folk. So, so you know they made him a sheriff. Uh, he was allowed to police the black people, basically to keep them in line. And um, but J. B. Stratford, who was his partner who established Greenwood, was a militant. He was totally different. Uh, but they they, they kind of still worked together to build Greenwood. And obviously, they profited from what they built as well. And Shane J.B. Stratford brought in W.B. Du Bois to talk to him about protecting, right, protecting their own people. And I believe the same speech, whether if we heard it today, will still be relevant today. About us protecting our own uh, is such a valuable thing, something that we must learn to do and continue to do. Uh, because the lynchings are not lynchings anymore. They obviously are coming from the police. <laughs> we know that. They just changed colors from white to blue. Uh, there's really been no difference in my in mindset as it relates to uh, as it relates to black people. So that was part two. Moving on into part three. Right, Black Force is the story of the first six African Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Chapter 19, The End of the Promise, Part 3. 
On a rainy Memorial Day in 1921, Dick Rowland entered the Drexel building in Tulsa through two glass doors to use the only color bathroom on the block, which is at the top of the building. Rowland was a 19-year-old high school dropout who worked shining shoes at a stand outside the office building. He was tall, confident, and outgoing. In Greenwood, where he had grown up and still resided, he was known for being ostentatious, showing his billfold and wearing an earring with his nickname Diamond Dick, but was thought by most to be harmless. He walked through the lobby and entered the elevator. On board was the elevator operator, 17-year-old white girl named Sarah Page. The door closed for a moment and then a scream came out. When the doors opened again, Sarah ran away. White clergy had heard the scream called the police. When the police arrived, they didn't make they didn't make much of the incident. They questioned Roland, sent him home, and quietly began to ask about the incident. We did not attach sufficient importance to the event, one police captain remembered. It all just seemed like a misunderstanding. The next day, newspaper the next day newspaper boys greeted people in the streets, pushing papers with the headlines, Nab Negro for attacking girl in elevator. Negro assaults white girl, they cried. The evidence that anything had happened was flimsy, but stories on black on white sexual assault always made for lucrative headlines and strong newspaper sales. The details of the story were mostly fabricated. Nevertheless, they incited calls for Roland to be locked up or worse. Later that day, the same officer who had let Roland go went to his house, took him away, and put him into a cell in the courthouse. Oh, we know where we're going from here. Once Roland was in jail, uh, talk of lynching him became a spread among white men in Tulsa. Calls began to come into the police chief about organizing of lynch mobs. The next day, the Tulsa Tribune ran an editorial encouraging lynching titled To Lynch a Negro Tonight. Later that afternoon, wow, To Lynch a Negro Tonight. Oh, that was chapter, oh, okay, To Lynch a Negro Tonight. So that's part, what was on part three? Okay, so that's part three. So now we know where we're going, right? Um, we're beginning to get into that area where many of us uh, know about uh, the uh, um, the race riots, or not many, hopefully many of us know about the race riots that took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was the destruction of what we consider to be Black Wall Street in Tulsa. Uh, that was actually part three uh, of, um, of the end of the promise. A quick word from our sponsor. Don't just buy black, decorate black. ERGJ Black Bazaar is the Afrocentric marketplace, and we specialize in urban home decor. Anything from shower sets to wall tapestries to duvet cover sets, you can decorate your entire home with original black art inspired gifts. Check us out at www.ergjblackbazaar.com, www.ergjblackbazaar.com. ERGJ Black Bazaar, the Afrocentric marketplace. We make group economics easy. Now we get to begin again. We're going to this thing. So, Black Fortunes are the story of the first six African Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. What's going on, Miss Amanda? 
How are you? Miss Tina Marie, thanks so much for joining us here today on the New Black Wall Street Book Club. Uh, the End of the Promise, Chapter 19, Part 4. Man, oh man, let's get into this thing. So late that afternoon, O.W. Gurley arrived at the courthouse to see the police chief. He, too, had heard that a lynch mob was being gathered for rolling. Gurley, there won't be any lynching as long as I'm sheriff, he assured Gurley. I'll keep your folks away from here. If you keep your folks away from here, there won't be any trouble. Gurley accepted his assurance and headed back to Greenwood to try to keep things under control. The police hoped that if they could prevent a racial standoff, bloodshed could be avoided. Early in the evening, the police chief phone rang. A voice said, we're going to lynch that Negro tonight. That black devil that assaulted that white girl. Then the line went dead. A few hours later, a crowd gathered on the courthouse steps with men demanded that Dick Rowland be brought out. You might as well go home because no one is going to get the Negro, the police chief told the mob leader. Inside, Sarah Page was being questioned by police officers. She said the incident might have been a mistake and she equivocated about pressing charges. She... Nonetheless, the white mob outside grew anger and anger, even as the sexual assault accusation was falling apart. Roland's cell was on the top floor of the courthouse, accessible only by an elevator. The chief ordered five deputies to disable the elevator and stand guard in front of his door. Nobody will be lynching him tonight. When Gurley returned from the courthouse, he found men in Greenwood in a state of agitation over fears that Roland would be lynched. Many younger men were gathering ammunition and weapons and planning to go to the courthouse to protect Roland. Gurley spoke to the group to the, uh, spoke to a group of them in the street outside his hotel. He told them that he had just spoken with the authorities and the police would protect Roland. You're a damn liar. A man named Anderson shouted at Gurley. They're going to take this nigger out. Fellow, you ought to be put in jail right now. Gurley snapped back at Anderson at Anderson. The man pulled his pistol from his hip and aimed it at Gurley, who was sure. He was about to be shot. An early lawyer named, uh, an older lawyer named Spears jumped in between them and talked Anderson into putting the gun away. Down the street, a lawyer named B.C. Franklin heard the fracas and rushed from his rooming house into the street. He found two World War I veterans, one black and one white, exiting the crowd with talk of war. We need a bomb one of the buildings, they shouted. Franklin, the hypnotic orator, told the crowd that such action would lead to the destruction of Greenwood and possibly the deaths of everyone there. After his speech, the crowd dispersed. Despite the best efforts of Gurley and Greenwood's elders, the group of 75 lightly armed men left Greenwood and went to the courthouse at 7.30 that night. Police Chief Willard McCullough dispatched the deputy to deal with them when they arrived. Boy, where are you going? The deputy asked. We're coming to see about that lynching, one of the Greenwood men said. Deputy replied, now this boy is upstairs and the cage is locked upstairs and there's no way anyone can get him. Go back. The group left without incident, walking north across the train tracks to Greenwood. Little over an hour later, as Greenwood's elders went back into their homes, young men and women gathered in pool halls, bars, and theaters. Among them, a wild rumor somehow spread that Roland had been taken from jail and lynched. By 9.30, a group of men with guns drove down to the courthouse. As they arrived, the barrels of their rifles and pistols gleamed under the streetlights. The police chief came out to deal with them. Now you men listen to me, he shouted. Go home before a lot of people get hurt. You have no business coming up here parading around guns like that. If you're a law-abiding people, you will go home before the real trouble starts. We will go home when we get that Negro boy you want to lynch. 
One of the men shouted back as others cheered him. We ain't going nowhere, they cor they cor they chorus. No one is going to be lynched here, the police chief told them. There's not going to be a charge against the young man. The white girl had admitted that she did he did not harm her. She said she was nervous and scared, so she screamed when she when he grabbed her. That is all there is to this case. She's a very nervous person, but she says she is not going to press charges as no harm was done. So go home now. I give you my word, the Negro will be released in the morning. If there's no charge, why don't you turn him over to us now, man asked. That's not possible, the chief answered. Why not? Another asked. Because he's telling a damn lie, another shouted. If we leave him here, he's a goner. They'll hang him like Judgment Day. The sheriff remained calm. Listen to me, he said. Nobody's going to hang anybody from this jail, but I can't turn him over to you tonight. Only a judge can release somebody who's been charged with a crime. And then added, we can't give into lawlessness, so go home before trouble starts. The men mumbled among themselves, then turned and went home to Greenwood. A large group of them retreated to the bars and began drinking. Shortly after they left, a group of armed white men showed up. They stationed themselves around the courthouse, readying themselves to fight if another group of armed black men returned. Late in the evening, after the bars and theaters closed for the night, a group of men who had gone to the courthouse earlier made their way back, still armed and now drunk. They flashed their guns as they approached and again confronted the sheriff on the courthouse steps, parading around with those guns is against the law, he told them as a white mob watch. Violence is easy to start, but hard to stop. Violence is easy to start, but hard to stop. Everybody put that in the comments below. Violence is easy to start, but hard to stop. He pointed to the top floor of the courthouse where snipers were positioned with rifles. Look up at those windows. See those gun barrels pointed at you? They will cut you down before the first person reaches the courthouse. Now go home before a lot of people get shot. As he was speaking, a white man approached the steps. Nigger, what are you going to do with that pistol? I'm going to use it if I need to. No, you give it to me. Like hell I will. The two men began to struggle over the gun. A shot was discharged into the air as they fought. Then all hell broke loose. A hell of bullets came from the white mob, hitting several of the blacks on the steps. Those who could move into alleys and start to run toward Greenwood. Those who could move, who could moved into alleys and started to run toward Greenwood. Men in cars with gun barrels protruding from the windows mowed down people who tried to escape. As others were picked off by gunfire from the mob, the white men gathered at the front of the courthouse. As the men raced back into Greenwood, the rioters followed them, shooting up buildings. The initial gunfire was followed by explosions as groups of armed white men moved from the courthouse steps into Greenwood. The men fired guns into buildings and homes and threw bombs through windows. Gurley was lying awake in the, in the bed with his wife, Emma, in, a, in their apartment at the top floor of the Gurley Hotel when the fighting started. He could smell smoke and hear the gunfire in the distance. When the sun came up, he looked out his window to see smoke and flame. The violence had been followed by waves of looters who burned blacks out of their homes and looted stores, taking some blacks as hostages and killing others in the streets. Gurley ran downstairs and outside into the street and, to, and the, sm the smoke-filled air. He heard gunshots and cracking fire. Greenwood was burning. Through the smoke, he saw six white men got down the street holding shotguns, rifles, jugs of gasoline, and torches. 
One of the men walked up on Gurley and mentioned toward and motioned toward his hotel. You better get out of that hotel because we're going to burn all this goddamn stuff. He said, you better get all of your guests out. The man left Gurley and went down the street door to door telling people to evacuate before they started burning. Gurley ran back inside and found Emma sitting in a rocking chair near the window of the bedroom looking outside and shaking in fright. We need to go, Emma. Their fire is going to get us. He told us it's going to get everyone. But where will we go if the fire is everywhere, Emma said. I don't know, Gurley replied. The girlies decided to try to run south across the train tracks to White Toast. The people knew Gurley there. He'd been the reasonable one who had tried to keep the young men of Greenwood in line. Surely they'd spare him. Surely someone would give him shelter. When they got outside, two white men in a, uh, with guns started shooting at the couple. Emma fell to the ground. Don't worry about me. You need to run, she told Gurley. Gurley took off without saying goodbye or looking back. As Gurley ran, he saw the National Guard and mobs of white men pouring into Greenwood. He was grabbed by some members of the Guard who were removing blacks from Greenwood and quarantining them at a baseball park just across the tracks. Whew! So we see, uh, you know, many of us have probably heard a little bit about this story. Uh, which is, you know, the, 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 the demise or the destruction or the burning or the bombing of, uh, of Tulsa or Black Wall Street in Tulsa. Uh, this is part four of, of, of uh, End of the Promise. And this is the beginning or of the end of what we consider to be Black Wall Street. Um, you know, O.W. Gurley was uh, an infamous guy, uh, but he, he found out very quickly that uh, once, once all hell breaks loose, you are the enemy. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, his wife is, uh, you know, just got gunned down. Uh, many of the of the people who built Black Wall Street were beginning to drop like flies uh, because although we had uh, we had ammunition, we weren't armed like them, uh, and uh, and and we didn't have the police like they do either. Um, and I wonder. I think the police, uh, the, the, you know, based upon the story, the chief of police, he did what he could to keep the violence down. Uh, maybe one more day, which I see the people saying, man, we ain't got one more day. Uh, but then they over there drunk uh, with guns, you know, yikes. Uh, so, you know, I, I really believe the police, the chief of police at that time did all he could to avoid what we are now reading happening because he knew what was going to take place as soon as one gunshot was fired. Uh, what's going on, uh, Saucy? They had a movie about it 20 years ago called... No, I don't think Rosewood was about... Was I don't think Rosewood was about uh, was about this area. I think that's another area of town, I believe. I don't remember. I think I saw that movie. But yeah, Rosewood was, uh, was definitely a, a movie uh, about some city. I don't know if it was the same or not. We had to look that up. I don't believe that Rosewood was about Black Wall Street, but maybe it was. I don't know. I don't remember. Um, so now we're, that was chapter four, or part four of chapter 19, The End of the Promise. We got one last chapter left of uh, Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African-Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Uh, chapter 19, 
the end of the promise. Let's look that up, Saucy. I, I believe uh, Rosewood movie. What was that about? So that was actually Rosewood was about it's in Rosewood, Florida. It's a small, peaceful town with extremely entirely African-American population of middle-class owners until New Year's Day of 1923 when a lich mob from a neighboring white community storms the town. Uh, so that may be... Um, it was based on a true story. So this is another area. So that's Rosewood in Florida, which very similar thing happened or similar thing happened uh, in Rosewood, Florida, as we're now as we're talking about Greenwood, so those two different areas, but similar, uh, looks like similar things maybe occurred. I mean, we don't know. Uh, I don't remember how that uh, catastrophe got started. Uh, we know from from this story that Greenwood was uh, was actually started by the the false claims of a young white uh, girl who was just. Uh, you know, she said nothing happened, but no one's trying to hit her at that particular time because she's still a young white girl, precious in the eyes of her people, right? So a little bit different. All right, chapter five, I mean, part five of chapter 19, end of the promise. So at the park, so now they're at the park. At the park, Gurley was isolated. The constituents of the district he built stared at him without speaking. They blamed him, his racial conciliation. His self-interest. My lord is Gurley. O.W. turned to see Emma up in the state of his bleachers. She ran down to Gurley and they embraced. O.W. had lost the faith of his people. He had lost his dream and he would eventually lose more than 250000 or $3.4 million in the riot. But at that moment, he was glad he hadn't lost Emma too. After the riots, he tried to sell his ruined lands to the local railroad company for 25000 but the deal fell through. In the months afterward, he moved to a four-bedroom house in South Los Angeles and opened a hotel. A rumor spread that he was dead and that he had been lynched during the violence. Gurley was not dead, but his dream was. In the end, he sold his land to other African-Americans in Greenwood who ultimately stayed there and began to rebuild. In 1926, W.E.B. Du Bois visited Greenwood. The riot's damage had been repaired and new buildings had risen. Looking on to resilient black faces of the promised land, he wrote, Black Tulsa is a happy city. It has new clothes. It is young and gay and strong. Five little years ago, fire and blood and robbery leveled it to the ground. Scars are there, but the city is impudent and noisy. It believes in itself. Thank God for the grit of Black Tulsa. Thank God for the grit in Black Tulsa. So, um, pop, uh, uh, contrary to popular belief, although we had uh, the bombing or the destruction of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, they actually did rebuild the city. So I think it's important for us to find out what happened after the rebuilding of the city uh, because they, they there were Blacks who stayed there. There were Blacks who rebuilt what was lost, but it was never quite the same. And I'm not quite sure if it's because of leadership that had been lost or whatever the case may be. But Black Wall Street was rebuilt or Black Tulsa was rebuilt, even if it wasn't necessarily considered Black Wall Street. Um, and so, yeah, that's very interesting. I did not know, well, I kind of knew, but I did not really know that they actually rebuilt it. And they actually said some people stayed to rebuild 
the city that was lost. And that was the story of, of what we consider to be Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For those that have never heard that story, didn't know about that, hopefully you learned something today. This is the New Black Wall Street Book Club, where Black folk do read. If you put in a book, we absolutely will find it. And I'm your host, ERGJ, your certified financial educator, and we invite you to join the Black Billionaires Club. Get connected with brothers and sisters who are serious about winning with money, serious about success, and super serious about helping you to accomplish your goals and to build your dreams. Check out the website at www.theblackbillionairesclub.com, www.theblackbillionairesclub.com. You can find that link in the description above or below. Make a decision to change the rest of your life. We'd ask that you would subscribe and support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes, to improve financial literacy within our community, and ultimately to help us to build the School of Wealth. To build an institution that will teach the next generation about money, and your small monthly contribution can make all the difference. Well, say, well, we want to say thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the New Black Wall Street Book Club. We want you to remember this, that it takes a village, and it starts with us. Let's build as we climb together. We all we got, people, and thank God that that's more than enough. Until next episode, you know what time it is. Mr. DJ, hit the music. New, new, new black, new. It's the new black Wall Street book club. With your host, Evan Jefferson. Evan Jefferson. It's time for us to go. Yeah. Now you ain't got to leave the computer, but we encourage you to get out there and learn and apply all the things you learn at the new black Wall Street. Book club, book club. <laughs> yeah. The new Black Wall Street. The new Black Wall Street. Book club, book club. Huh.